Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. We've got golf clubs to beat off the hordes and costumes to hide from them too, right? So <laughs> we just kind of had our own ecosystem there to stave off the apocalypse. So it was a weird start. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Lance Shainer, founder of Omega Yeast Lab in Chicago. A microbiologist by training and former patent attorney, Lance's analytical approach to creating hybrid yeast strains for breweries was groundbreaking from the inception of Omega Yeast in 2013. We discuss how Lance approaches creating these hybrid strains of yeast, and we give special attention to Omega's Hothead the first commercially produced Fike strain available in North America. As the yeast lab that has always seemed to be a step ahead of the beer industry, I was curious to where he finds inspiration and how he works with hop growers and brewers to better understand their challenges and where he can provide a solution. We also tie together music and beer. How does Lance square his musical and professional pursuits? Let's dive and get heavy. Lance Shader, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. So you're a microbiologist by training, and you spent time as a patent attorney. Surprisingly, you're actually not the first patent attorney, former patent attorney on the show. So something is at the same time attractive to that profession, and maybe not. For folks, I mean, uh, how did you sort of come into those two fields? It actually is a little more related than it might sound on the surface. So um, when I was in college, I was a microbiology major. Um, with the intent of going on to graduate school, which is what I did. Um, and it was while I was in graduate school, I was getting a little, uh, I don't know, disenchanted, I guess, uh, with bench science. So kind of looking for something else to do that would still leverage my um, scientific training. So uh, just in talking to my PhD advisor, um, and uh, he knew somebody else who had gone into patent law after graduate school, uh, so I talked to her about it and it sounded intriguing um, just because you're still kind of using your scientific degree uh, as a patent lawyer. You still have to understand the science, but you have to also understand the law because you're effectively a- uh, acting as the go-between uh, between an inventor and the patent office. So you have to speak both the, the science and the uh, legal side of things. So um, it, it and it paid well, which was one of the other uh, you know, just going into the, a career in academia didn't pay all that well. And just the the thought of having to fight for grant money was just kind of depressing. And it's still depressing. I still talk to my uh, colleagues who are in that realm. And it's just it's just a fight, a constant fight for money and justifying, you know, the science you're trying to do. And it just all sounded very depressing. So, yeah, just looking for an alternative. So that's why I went into at the law school with the goal of becoming a patent attorney. And so I just moved, went straight from graduate school to uh, law school, did that for three years. Uh, this was in Houston, Texas, and then moved back to Chicago, where I was a patent attorney for four years. So then, yeah, so I did that for a while and then 
start to get kind of bored with it, which I guess is also uh, something about me. I get <laughs> bored with things quickly and, and want to try something different. So it was about four years in where I was getting a little bored and kind of looking for, you know, something different, uh, start thinking about doing in-house attorney, you know, at a pharma company, something like that. But I ended up having a conversation with one of my colleagues at the firm, Andy Smith, who's one of the co-founders of 1090 Brewing in Glenview. And we were just talking about what he was doing and where he was going to be getting his yeast from. And it, it was literally, I mean, I can easily pin it to that conversation that uh, just sparked this thought that uh, there's nobody else doing any sort of yeast supply uh, in the Midwest. So, you know, and the craft industry was growing, especially in Chicago. So it was that conversation that kind of uh, sparked the interest to give this a shot and literally went home, you know, half inebriated from that uh, meeting we're having and informed my wife that I was going to try to start a yeast lab <laughs> and, and and quit law. You know, yeah, she was definitely like, I don't what are you talking about? Because, I mean, you know, again, this like came out of nowhere. I mean, I, this is not in my mind uh, before having that conversation. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, she's been uh, totally supportive. So I ended up having another conversation with one of my colleagues at the firm, who uh, Mark Schwartz, who actually ended up becoming uh, my business partner at Omega. And um, so at the time, I was just kind of throwing this idea to him, like, what do you think about this? I think it could work. And uh, he had always had kind of a little more of an entrepreneurial uh, spirit and like a kind of a, a money man type of person, like looking at that angle. So, you know, we were talking back and forth a few days later. He asked me if I wanted a business partner. I said, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a big risk and it'd be good to kind of go in it together. So, it was this was actually December of 2012. And by February of 2013, we already had a space leased in the Chicago Costume Company. And we rented like a corner of that warehouse. So it was a super weird building at the time. There's uh, you know, it was a costume warehouse. On the bottom floor, there was us, there was a brewery, Lake Effect Breweries in the back, and upstairs was a golf club manufacturer. So it's just this totally weird vibe at this place. Um, I always said we'd be well equipped in case there was ever an apocalypse because we've got beer, yeast, we've got golf clubs to beat off the hordes um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and costumes to hide from them too, right? So uh, we just kind of had our own ecosystem there to uh, stave off the apocalypse. So it was a weird start, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of I mean, the meandering way of how we ended up doing yeast. I love this visual of an apocalypse coming and you guys just coming out dressed up as ghosts and zombies with golf clubs and just boozed up and you could throw yeast at them or something. Maybe you were interested in uh, speaking of fending things off. You were interested in anthrax. Is that right? Tell me a little bit about some of the microbiology you were interested in prior to Omega. Yeah. So actually, when when I was an undergrad at the University of Illinois, the way I ended up in Texas was um, I <laughs> actually it was beer related also. So um, I would always hang out with the graduate students uh, when they took the visiting speakers from other universities that came in to talk about their research. Uh, after they talked, we'd take them to this place close to the microbiology department at U of I that had beer and bread. I think it was called Bread, bread Company. I don't remember. Um, but they had fantastic craft beer and bread and cheese and all that. And I would essentially just tag along with the... Um, 
graduate students mostly to you know get free beer and cheese and bread but you know it was always fun to talk to these professors too and so it was around the time that i was looking for graduate schools and uh, we had a a professor visit from the university of texas and she studied anthrax so the talk was very interesting and um ended up you know talking to her and she said you know you should apply at our school they were honestly not on my radar at all i uh, looking for schools more, I think, in the Midwest at the time. But what she was doing sounded interesting. It looked like what other people in the department were doing was interesting. So I applied and and went on a visit there and really liked the faculty, really liked the students and uh, and ended up going there. So it was just, I mean, it's, it really is weird to think about all these things in, in retrospect, but it was, you know, beer that got me going to these things where I ended up talking to this professor that was interesting. And so I ended up in, in Texas. And then when I was in Texas, everybody, your first year of graduate school, you do rotations uh, through three different labs uh, to kind of choose which professor you get along with and you're going to stick to you know your five years of research before you graduate, do your thesis. So anthrax was very popular amongst, uh, you know, I think it was probably in the news and stuff at the time. So. So a lot of the my classmates wanted to rotate through her lab and I wanted to do something different. I'm like, I don't want to go the same place everybody else is going at the same time. I'll just rotate through her lab at one of the later rotations. So what can I do in the meantime? Well, there's this other professor who's been there for you know a year or two and he studies yeast. I'm like, oh, I like yeast. I like to make beer. I'd already started uh, homebrewing when I was in college so um, and wanted and was still doing it in graduate school. So I'm like, well, I can really get an intimate understanding of, you know, culturing yeast. So I uh, joined that lab and just fell in love with working with yeast. I mean, not, not just to make beer. It's just if you're a microbiologist, it's a great organism to work with. Uh, it's, it's very genetically malleable. Uh, so you can kind of do whatever you want to it. It's, um, it is uh, a eukaryote like we are. So uh, you can even go so far as to take the human version of a gene and replace the yeast version inside the yeast and it'll do the, the same thing. So, you know, we are very closely related to yeast cells. Uh, and so a lot of human health conditions are studied in yeast. So, so yeah, so I, I did that and, and really, really liked my rotation through there. Ended up only doing one other rotation and asking to opt out of my third so I could rejoin the East Lab and, and be off to the races. So I had five years of, you know, actually learning how to manipulate yeast and just grow yeast on a daily basis. And yeah, because of anthrax. <laughs> you were pretty well equipped to start Omega in 2013. And I remember following Omega because, as you mentioned, it was the first yeast lab dedicated to supplying breweries in the Midwest. And not just that feat, but also sort of these blends of different strains that was a little bit interesting I remember specifically there was like a French Saison and DuPont strain that was uh, super cool. I actually remember homebrewing with it with a friend and was really, really cool to have that come from Chicago and to have it be something that was a little bit different. How did you sort of decide on, I guess, those strains, but also to look at it not just as I want to have single strains or a single identity to the yeast that someone's going to work with? Yeah, I mean, when, when we started, I did want to, I wanted to create new things in addition to just, I mean, we, we kind of, we want to be everything to brewers. We want to be uh, the place that's coming up with brand new, creating new strains, whether that's from mating, which is what uh, you're describing. So the uh, Sazenstein's monster um, is a hybrid of those two strains. I mean, not unlike our parents, you know, getting together to 
create us, it's the same thing. You do two different yeast cells. You can, under certain conditions, get them to mate and create a new yeast. Uh, and that's what that strain was. And we were the, the first in the beer yeast market to have any sort of hybrids. If you follow this stuff closely, there have been others that have done it since then. So I think, you know, there are a handful of things you can look at us to see that we kind of started these trends. And I think, you know, generating hybrids is one of those things. Um, and, you know, just like we are a unique manifestation of our, you know, the combined genetics of our parents, it's the same thing with the yeast. You can make two yeast cells and get, you know, loads of different progeny that have different traits. So we wanted to use that to, you know, create new strains. So in that instance, what we were trying to do is French Saison is a very robust and reliable yeast, not the most exciting when it comes to flavor, whereas the DuPont strain has a very nice flavor to it, but is extremely finicky and wants to just, you know, stop fermenting halfway through. So our hope when we went into that was where we could find some progeny that were that had the best of both worlds, that had, you know, flavor profile closer to the DuPont strain, but the fermentation kinetics of the French Saison. And we got pretty darn close to it. It definitely tastes more like DuPont, but is very, very reliable workhorse strain. One of the neat facts about that one is that's actually one of Vinny Salurzo at Russian, Russian River's favorite strains. So they, he does uh, uh, has some saisons that he is very proud of that uses that that yeast. It's those sorts of things that really I don't know. Reflecting on this after all these years, you know, I, I wouldn't I didn't even really dream about that sort of thing when we got into it. That you know uh, these people that I'd read about before ever even getting into the beer industry would actually be. Uh, you know, inspired and motivated by things we were creating. I think that particular combination is very interesting because in some way, I imagine it actually being a truer reflection of what you may have encountered historically as a blend, just because things weren't so sterile and things weren't so specific in terms of farmhouse culture in Central Europe. Was that something that sort of came to mind? I'm thinking of like a specific chapters in Phil Markowski's farmhouse beers when you were sort of talking about the higher level assessment of how these things are all sort of related. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, the, the whole blending approach is something we we do as well, where we'll literally just take, you know, multiple strains uh, that we like different uh, aspects of and combine them like a, a Saccharomyces strain we really like and combine that with a Brett to arrive at this flavor profile we're looking for. So, I mean, we'll do all of these things, you know, whether that's uh, blending or actually creating a new strain, like in the case of Saison Science Monster, the, the benefit there is that there's not going to be any sort of drift from repitch to repitch, depending on if one of those strains can outcompetes the other. And that is what happens a lot of these times when you do mix these cultures is at some point something's going to dominate. Um, so you can get a, a drift over generations and brewers definitely like to squeeze out the generations. So, you know, doing like a hybrid that has the best features of both, but it's in a single yeast is going to give you a lot more consistency over multiple generations. So they each have their place, uh, each have their pros, each have their cons. One sort of strain that I know Omega sort of became known for was the Kvike and all of the sort of different Kvike like yeast strains that you brought to market relatively quickly and very influentially. I remember around that time, the media was talking a lot about how big beer is going to harness Kvike because of the high temperature fermentation capabilities and the quick fermentation. So how did you go from learning about the Kvike yeast and the Norwegian farmhouse culture to sliding it and then getting it out to breweries? Yeah. So we, uh, we definitely uh, learned about it the same way probably every other brewer has learned about it, which is by reading Lars' blog. Uh, this was in 2015, so we were. This was 
pretty early in our existence. But Adi, who works uh, as one of our, actually our first employee, was an avid reader of all sorts of, you know, beer blogs. And he said, hey, have you seen this? And and showed it to me and we're both reading it. It's like, this sounds nuts. You know, he's talking about uh, really high fermentation temperatures that we know if we were to use any American ale or English ale strain, we'd be, you know, drinking jet fuel. It'd be very unpleasant. But what he was describing was um, fruity, non-phenolic. So, I mean, it really was a collection of traits that sounded impossible, uh, given what we knew about domesticated ale yeast. So we just kind of made it our mission to, you know, get a hold of some of these. So I actually reached out to Lars through Facebook and he didn't get back to me. I mean, at the time, you know, again, we'd only been around a couple of years, but weren't super well known. Um, so I, you know, I guess he just assumed us some crap, crackpot reaching out. But we had read closely enough to see that he was uh, submitting these yeast strains to the NCYC, National Collection of Yeast Cultures in the UK. And you can order them from that. So... Uh, we found the you know accession numbers for those strains and and based on his descriptions in the blogs said well this one sounds interesting um, so we uh, got that strain from the NCYC uh, that was the strain that ended up becoming uh, hothead so we got that yeast in and did uh, a split batch fermentation so we had you know, 15 gallons of wort split it into three different fermenters and pitched at three different temperatures and packaged up the beer. And I mean, all three of them were fantastic, uh, different in subtle ways, like the higher temperature ones were slightly more fruity, slightly more well attenuated, but even at the lower end, they were, they performed fine. I mean, you know, we're instant believers. They, they did kind of everything uh, that Lars said they would do. So right. I mean, as soon as we had that result, we're like, we, we need to make these available to people. So went about getting this strain out and available to people. And we ended up calling it hothead uh, because at the time, nobody knew what Kvike was. I mean, if you were reading Lars blog, you you knew, but there were no other, uh, we were the first yeast lab to put these uh, in the market. So we went with kind of a name that kind of reflected what it did, uh, uh, you know, cute little name, uh, but we didn't call it Strondekvik, which is what, it, you know, it's, uh, it would be known as now, uh, because I think if we put it out as Strondekvik, we probably wouldn't have sold anybody, any of it, because nobody knows what the hell that is. But, you know, gradually, as more and more people learned of these things, tried hothead, uh, and knew and knew what Kvike was and was looking for Kvike. That's when we, you know, when we, as we introduced other strains, actually kind of kept their, uh, you know, original nomenclature. So like Voss Kvike and Hornendal Kvike were the the strains that we followed or the cultures that we followed up with. Um, once that kind of was more established, but you know, I mean, we were early enough in this process that nobody knew what that was. So yeah, we were early uh, believers of that, and that's uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, these you know, with us, without us pushing it, I'm sure they would have gradually become uh, popular too. But this is another one of those instances where I, I feel like we can rightly say we were uh, the first movers on these things and saw their potential. Absolutely. What styles were you expecting people to use this with being ahead in so many ways, like you were sort of alluding to? What were you expecting people to do with it? Yeah, well, I mean, what we expected people to do with it at the beginning was it would, another reason why we call it hothead is not to be making like, traditional Norwegian beers. Nobody knew what those were or how to make them or anything like that. So uh, based on the traits we were seeing from that, we expected people to use them in the same way they would use an American ale strain or an English ale strain. So, you know, making uh, IPAs and porters and stouts and pale ales and uh, anything you'd normally use an American or English pale ale English or an American ale strain for would be fine to use a quite for. And that's what, uh, 
So that's how we pushed it. That's how we still suggest. I mean, it's you know fun to maybe try uh, some sort of Norwegian ale that's got you know spruce tips in it or things like that. Uh, it's a fun thing to do. But I mean, you've got to make beer that you know most of your customers are going to recognize and, and want to try. So, but the advantage of using these strains is you know maybe a slightly unique flavor profile, but one that's still approachable, not phenolic. So you're not introducing any, you know, Belgian characters. You can do a American IPA with it, but they're very, very fast because you can ferment them warm where they, you know, perform much more quickly. So, you know, as a practical matter, a brewery can crank out more beer with the same equipment uh, than they could with a standard American ale strain. So, uh, we just, I mean, one of the big advantages that we saw and I have always pushed is that it's just, it's a, it's a way to get more beer out more quickly and you're not sacrificing quality. This is how these strains have, you know, been domesticated over the years. They are evolved to ferment this way just because we, you know, ferment English ale strains right now at 68 degrees Fahrenheit does not mean that's the only way to do it. If there are other strains more acclimated to warm temperatures that can produce a similar outcome, but do it faster, that's not cheating. That's just the way these yeasts evolved. Um, so it's it's another tool. And, there, and we've had stories from brewers that uh, have absolutely implemented it that way. They've been able to get more beer out the door uh, faster using these. When you're sort of thinking about new strains to breed, what are some of the things that you think of? Are you reacting to what you see in the market? Are there other sorts of pushes or pulls that you feel when you are making these types of decisions? Yeah, I mean, uh, one good example is we've got uh, a strain that we call Tropical IPA and kind of our I don't know, a white whale right now is trying to create a strain that has the flavor profile of tropical IPA, but uh, has better brewing characteristics. So some of the annoyances with that strain, well, it's, it's diastatic, which, you know, a lot of brewers don't want to introduce a, a diastatic yeast. And it's uh, the most non-flocculent strain we have in the collection. Like it takes so long to drop out of suspension. So, uh, you know, kind of the dream strain for me is something that tastes just like tropical IPA, but uh, flocculates right at the end of fermentation, drops like a brick, and uh, and isn't diastatic. So, uh, one of the things we're playing with is breeding it with various other yeast to try to find that combination. It hasn't proved to be quite as easy as uh, the Season Science Monster, which just kind of worked very well, very uh, quickly. Uh, this, but you know, for reasons that are, aren't clear to us, because genetics are extremely complicated, this one is a little harder to get that magic combination of traits. But that—that's what kind of drives our thought process in in some of these. So we have a, a specific goal in mind by trying to combine two different strains. But also, what I think is fun about it is the completely unexpected. I mean, you just take, not all strains will mate. So I, one of the things that's fun to me is to take two strains that are capable of mating and just mating them and just plain seeing what happens. You know, just like we are nothing like our, you know, there are obviously similarities uh, between us and our parents. We are not the same person, right? So it's the same thing with the yeast. There are completely unexpected uh, things that pop out of these combinations. So um, I think just the the sheer discovery and adventure and unexpected nature of uh, hybridization is one of the things that's fun too. So in that way, we just approach it in a completely unbiased way. Just what do we get when we combine these two yeasts? You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Lance Shaner in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorch Tundra present shows and festivals at scorchtundra.com slash tickets. 
We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Lance Shaner. What are some of the experiments that you've done or things that you sort of expected to go very well that maybe didn't make it to market? I guess what, uh, one uh, good one is related to kind of what some of the things we're working on right now with these uh, thialized yeasts. So thiols are a class of compounds that are um, very, very aromaactive uh, and the particular thiols that we're interested in uh, smell like passion fruit, grapefruit, box tree, cat pea, if you're too, you know, too much of it. And uh, there's an enzyme in that's native to brewing yeast that uh, can take these precursor versions of those compounds that are present in malt and hops and, uh, and convert them into this volatile thiol that we can smell. But in brewing yeast, it tends to, it's either, the gene is either broken, so it can't do it, or it's not expressed uh, because historically this gene has been needed for went to scavenge nitrogen from from the environment and in wort you don't need to do that. There's always an abundance of nitrogen around, so this gene is never turned on. Um, so what we did is uh, used CRISPR to essentially give it a different control element, so we can plug in a promoter in front of that gene that tells it to be on all the time, regardless of whether there's nitrogen or not in the medium. And so we that we released a strain called Cosmic Punch, which is based on uh, our British Five strain that is by far the most popular uh, hazy I- IPA yeast we have to give it this added, uh, you know, thiol boost. And it works really, really well in that strain. And you'd think based on that, you could just take that same gene and plug it into kind of whichever strain you want. Uh, but one of the things we found is that when you put that in lager yeast, it, it tends to make too much sulfur. Uh, just like H2S. Uh, so you get kind of these eggy smells. And uh, that's because this enzyme, in addition to having this style re- re- uh, releasing capability, uh, can also take the amino acid cysteine and clip off an H2S molecule from that. So uh, for reasons, again, that we still don't even fully understand, it does more of that or causes more of that in a lager yeast background. Because we'd very much like to have a lager yeast that pumps out a lot of files. But when we take the same gene that we can get great results in British 5 and put it in lager yeast, it's making lots of sulfur. So this, you know, we, now we've had to dive into like, why is it doing that? And are there things we can do about that? So you know, a lot of the stuff is totally unpredictable. We don't, we don't know this is going to happen until we actually try it. Another example of that in that thiol world, we started to test different hop products along with it, you know, and hop, the timing of uh, Whirlpool hop, well, not timing Whirlpool hop, and timing of dry hop, uh, all that sort of stuff. And we found that if we had lots of pellets in the Whirlpool, uh, we would get less thiol output in the final product than we would if we had just malt alone and no hops whatsoever. That was confusing. It's like, why? I mean, maybe you don't get an enhancement from Whirlpool, but you should at least have the same baseline that you had with malt alone. But instead, we saw a reduction. So for some reason, and we think, well, we know it's somehow linked to the plant matter in hops, because if we use some of these new hop products like Incognito or Salvo, 
which are, you know, just extracts and don't have any of that plant matter in it and use that in the whirlpool, we don't see this. We don't see the squelching of uh, thiol potential. And we end up getting this great synergy between the hoppiness from the, those products and the, the thiols that are released by the yeast. Um, and so, you know, because thiol released by yeast was not really a thing until we, you know, created these yeasts that were capable of that, this isn't a problem anybody would have even been aware of, right? Like we, we kind of created this new condition and we're now trying to figure out how we optimize that. And we've been, you know, discovering these kind of unexpected things where, you know, whirlpooling with T90 pellets actually reduces the amount of these styles you get in the final product. And no way for us to have known that, uh, you know, before we tried this. So now we have to figure out, well, how can we get around this so we can maximize the, you know, potential for these strains? So there's just always, you know, you just got to keep your eyes open. And when you are confronted with these sorts of unexpected things, just, we just keep diving into it and figuring out the, the chemistry behind it and, you know, see if there's anything we can do about that. And you sort of led me to the next thing that I was thinking of, and that is that there's been a, quite a bit of innovation and as a result of IPA being the most popular style of craft beer, a lot of interest in what's new in hops, whether it's incognito or whether it's the cryo or moving away generally from pelletized forms and into more efficient forms for small breweries to be able to process and maximize flavor. So how do you sort of track those things? And is that also a big part of what you look at when it comes to developing new strains i mean I, you know sometimes we're not really conscious of it i mean like that, that this the example i just gave is kind of that where we didn't go into this knowing incognito or salvo would be better for using with this yeast we kind of just saw this problem we we're seeing and then so what's different about you know t90 pellets and incognito and uh what what sort of chemistry could be explaining how why we're getting this squelching and we have uh, we have great contacts with some of these. I mean, we're trying to figure this stuff out with the hop companies too, as a result of kind of observing these things and some of the research we've been doing. And haze stability leads us to having collaborations with hop manufacturers because they're interested in you know, the same thing we are, which is ultimately helping their customers achieve their brewing goals. You know, get the most consistency they can out of the products that are available to them. So when we do see these sorts of things, we have collaborations with these. Uh, other suppliers to so we can all know how to get the the most out of these products. You kind of have a unique vantage point into what producers are making because they're often using your strain with a specific tense purpose, whereas a maltster may not know exactly where all the pale malt or the pills malts going into. You know, you can use hops in so many different ways. Where do you see things sort of going in the craft beer world? I'm just sort of curious as to where you think things are heading. Yeah, we I I would agree that we can definitely kind of see trends and see at least where things are right now and, and how they've changed from year to year just based on uh, on yeast sales for sure. Um, and frankly, I don't think we've seen, you know, hazy IPA slow down. I mean, it's still dominant. Twenty, I think last I checked, 25% of our sales are a single strain. Uh, that is our British Five strain that is used to make hazy IPAs. <laughs> and that doesn't even mean that, you know, only 25% of our yeast is being used to make hazy IPAs because there are other yeasts that are suitable for that same thing. So um, I would wager that, you know, at least 50% of our total yeast sales are destined for making any IPAs. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, you can go to any or not any, but most tap rooms and, and know that what I'm saying is the truth. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are plenty of places that you can go and, you know, if they have 10 taps, nine of them are 
a version of an IPA. So IPAs are still dominant. They've been it's been this way based you know on what we see with yeast sales for quite a while. Uh, but one thing we've definitely observed over the last couple of years is uh, kind of a increase in popularity of craft lager. We we make uh, far more lager yeast than we did you know two three years ago. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but you know I can just tell based on. Uh, incoming orders and and how our what our production looks like that we're making as a percentage of our total sales uh, way more lager yeast than we used to. Uh, this is definitely a trend I can get behind. Um, that's that's the, I've evolved into you know <laughs> a uh, back into I guess a you know a lager drinker. So I mean I'm drinking Goldfinger Vienna style lager right now, and these are the beers I gravitate towards now. Is you know Pilsners. Uh, Vienna lagers, things like that. They're just clean, focused on, you know, the ingredients. Uh, and, you know, ironically enough, where the yeast kind of stays out of the way and lets all the other uh, ingredients do their thing is kind of what I've gravi- gravitated back towards. And uh, a lot of other people too, based on, you know, the, the sales we see with lager yeast. Outside of that, I'd say uh, we see an increasing um, seltzers, you know, uh, that's, that's uh, one thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's been fairly steady, I guess, over the last years. Last year or so, we've got a nutrient that we've made available for brewers that want to make seltzers, and that's doing pretty good. We've seen a, a lot more interest in NA beer, and you know there are several approaches to making that that do kind of rely on the yeast, like finding yeast that can't ferment maltose uh, is one of those uh, ways that yeast can be used to kind of um, make those beers a little easier. Uh, interestingly, that's not really an approach we favor. Uh, we've been experimenting ourselves with making these types of beers, and we really, even though you know we are yeast people, we we think the best uh, examples are made with changes in process. So doing you know very very high mashing and with a low gra- you know low amount of grain to make a very non fermentable wort. We've made some really really good you know half percent ABV IPAs, and you can use any old standard yeast for that. And that's an approach we favor over, you know, a maltose negative yeast because those things have a lot of a lot of things about those that scare me. Uh, because you can imagine if you're using this type of yeast in a brewery where you're doing all sorts of normal beers, if you're not doing things with that final package product to prevent, you know, cross contamination by normal brewing yeast into that beer, like you're gonna have bombs if you use a maltose negative yeast and uh, you know accidentally cross-contaminated with the brewing yeast that you have all around you in this brewery. Our view is it's just, you know, unless you have these tools to ensure uh, sterility of the product you packaged, it's just a dangerous approach to take for craft brewers, like literally dangerous um, to have these, you know, canned bombs uh, where you can get a very, very good product by just kind of changing your process and using the yeast you already have around you. So, you know, it'd be great for us to come up with a yeast that, you know, works really, really well for um, uh, for any beers. Our view is that you can use any of these you already have around you. Just change your process, and you're going to get a much uh, much less dangerous and um, you know easy to make. You don't need special equipment. There are so many advantages to doing it that way. But it'll be interesting to you know. We've seen some other companies come out with these maltose negative yeasts, and I just it worries me it, just because brewers aren't equipped to, I think, properly deal with those. I mean, you you have to pasteurize, in my view, if you're going to do something like that, or you're creating a risk to your customers. 
You sort of mentioned that you've brewed a lot of beer in your facility and you sort of have to by process of testing out what you're doing in order to bring something to market. How much beer did you make last year? How many barrels came out of Omega? I think I was actually asked by one of our suppliers to estimate our total for the year. This isn't something I think about that much since we are not selling it. I guessed when they asked that we produce around a barrel a week. So, you know, not a huge amount. So that's, that's my guess. So, you know, 50, 52 barrels uh, a year is uh, probably around what we produce. Um, We've got around 40 employees in Chicago and everybody likes beer. So we churn through it. Yeah. So, and it's good. I mean, I'm glad we churn through this stuff because, you know, we don't want to get bored with it. We're doing new things all the time, trying new strains, splits between all these things. So yeah, around 50 barrels a year. Um, And and there's somebody whose job is to brew to, with our strains He's on the R&D team and gets to you know brew something different every week just to, to test out these new yeasts. So I hope he thinks it's a fun job because I think it would be a pretty fun job. You've spent a lot of time as a maker yourself with Omega and also as a patent attorney as well. You're spending time working with, in some capacity, people that are makers. And you're also a musician as well, which I find to be an interesting sort of combination with things that you can approach with a very analytical skill. Do you find overlaps in how you sort of approach music to how you approach your professional endeavors? Yeah, I, in some sense, probably. It's just the uh, wanting to know how things work is kind of, uh, I think, defines all of my passions, all my interests, Um, uh, you know, diving into all of the variables and figuring out what's doing what and what's important. And that's, yeah, definitely with music, you know, you hear a piece of music, it's like, oh, I want to learn how to play this part. And it's inspired me to learn all of the instruments. (laughs) I I, I started out playing guitar when I was in high school, um, self-taught. And then when I was in Houston, had a friend who uh, also played guitar and we really wanted to start a Led Zeppelin tribute. Uh, we're both huge Led Zeppelin fans. So we kind of started out, uh, we didn't really ever want to do what some of these other tributes do where they you know, dress like them and have the exact same kind of instrumentation. I mean, one of the things about Zeppelin is there are plenty of songs that have rhythm guitar going on at the same time that he's doing lead. And we're like, it would be fun to recreate that. So, you know, have a two guitar attack where you can get this, uh, you know, the full sound that you hear on the album. Um, But we were also finding it hard to find all the members when we were going at it, you know, starting with just two guitarists. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to learn how to play bass. So uh, I, I, you know, for this band started to figure out how to play bass. And so that's how I became a bass player. And ultimately, like to this day, I feel like I'm a better bass player than I am. Uh, guitar player and that was driven by necessity we wanted to get this you know led zeppelin tribute off the ground and we need a bass player <laughs> and and the other, the other guitar player was way better than me <laughs> at uh at doing you know jimmy page lead stuff so and then that made it a lot easier than we could find a singer and we uh lucked upon finding a fantastic singer who also played guitar so we ended up kind of getting our wish there too where he he could play rhythm parts uh you know while he was singing and we could have lead going on at the same time have this nice full Led Zeppelin sound. So that's a, and then, you know, when I moved back, this was in Houston, when I moved back to Chicago, I'm like, well, I really have this itch to learn how to play drums. So I got, you know, electronic drum set and, um, and, and taught myself to play, you know, I'm by no means a great drummer, but uh, I can, you know, play beats and do basic things. And, um, and it, yeah, it's, and it's always just been informed by, you know, that sounds really cool. 
I want to learn how to do that <laughs> and, and, and figuring out uh, to the best of my ability. What other instruments are on the horizon for you as uh, new and exciting things to learn? New, um, so I have a, a banjo I should really spend more time with. That's always, you know, one thing I never really focused on with my guitar playing is right hand technique, you know, like finger picking. And that's one of those, that, I mean, a, a banjo is that's to me, whenever I watch those, that's all right hand stuff. Like, you know, the, if you watch their left hand, they're just like fingering in a finger a chord and then they'll just arpeggiate this chord. Uh, you know, with their their fingers and they do these really neat things with the right hand. So it's, it's just neat because to me, it's almost the opposite of the guitar where a lot of it is, you know, the speed and dexterity with your left hand. So I have one and really need to spend, you know, more time on that. I, I, drumming is something I'd like to get better at of an upright bass, like a kind of a stick bass that I'd like to spend more time on. I have Unfortunately, more more instruments than I have time. Any plans to have a Omega house band? Uh, so, uh, yeah, and actually, there's there's uh, we kind of do. <laughs> so you know, I mean, music has always been very important to me, and somehow we've ended up with lots of musicians at work too. Just you know, it's not something we put in our job descriptions when we're hiring people, but it turns out we have attracted lots of musicians. So I I had a an old drum kit that we keep at work. Um, have a bass amp, guitar amp. We've got multiple bass players, multiple guitar players. Uh, and uh, last year we hired our first real drummer. So up until then, unfortunately, I was the best drummer we had, which is not saying much. Um, and we, we uh, one of our hires last year is a top-notch drummer. So we have like completely competent people to play all these different instruments. And we do try to, you know, get a little time doing those sorts of things. We actually set up a, well, I mean, a karaoke setup basically at work too. And the way our, our shifts work at, at work, we have overlaps of our crews on Wednesday. So Wednesday evenings are a time where, you know, we can get work done early and everybody congregates in our, our kind of play space and, and, and we do karaoke and play uh, live music and things like that, just which really, you know, breaks up the day. And we've turned that into a thing where we invite a, a brewery over once a month on one of these Wednesdays and do karaoke with the brewery. And, and if we have, uh, if there are any um, musicians in those groups, we'll try to uh, play with them too. So we had Burnt City over one time and, and Ben at Burnt City is a fantastic guitar player and singer. So we just kind of launched into playing some songs um, with him. So it's, uh, yeah, it's something I've uh, incorporated into work just to, it's one of my interests. It's lots of uh, other people's at work interests. So we, we have fun with it. Obviously, there's a lot of musicians in a lot of different professions, but what do you speculate are the reasons why musicians are really attracted to this industry or to this type of work? Yeah, I mean, probably the creative aspect of it. I mean, I think a lot of brewers are, you know, creative people and music is a is a creative outlet. So it's, it's probably just that, this general, you know, creativity uh, that drives that sort of thing. So... Like I said, we don't we don't seek it out, but we've that, we have a ridiculous percentage of people that are musicians. It's interesting because I think a lot of how I see things is that there is a little bit of science and a little bit of creativity that goes into this work, whether it's frankly what you do or whether it's brewing. And there's a lot of passion. And that sort of trifecta is what brings people into this world that is unlike a lot of other professions. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there, you know, you could, I couldn't go into my, my old patent law office and find a, a, you know, a karaoke and band set up that any lawyers can uh, roll up and play. So it's, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's unique in that respect. I don't think you're going to find many. Ind- I, there are so many, you know, unique aspects about this industry. The the you know collaborative nature of it, and breweries working with breweries, and it's just uh, it's different and it's fun. And I have not regretted what I've done for a second. Well, Lance, thank you so much for coming on Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. I'm really glad I got the chance to do this. It's been fun to talk with you.